I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, the rise of the robot. Would you trust one to grow your food, operate on you, fight a war on your behalf, or save your life in an emergency? We're looking at how robots are on course to alter our lives. Plus, new insights into how the sun works and climate change, why we need to wake up and smell the coffee. Scientists are saying that warmer weather will affect the flavour of the world's favourite beverage. We find out how. I'm Greg Jackson. I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Across the world, bacteria are becoming increasingly resistant to the most commonly prescribed antibiotics. But resistance isn't the whole story. Bacteria frequently enter into periods of dormancy when they're effectively switched off. And while they're in this state, they stop being sensitive to the effects of many types of antibiotics. So even if they're not resistant, you still might not find them being killed off by that drug. And this can mean that infections keep on coming back. So doctors end up using more antibiotics, and that makes the resistance problem worse. But to know how long the dormant spell is for a specific bug has always been hard to measure, and it's certainly beyond the scope of most hospital microbiology departments. Now scientists in Israel have found a way to do this much more easily. Chris heard Hal from Natalie Balaban at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. We actually discovered under the microscope that bacteria are able to survive antibiotic treatment not only because they are resistant, but they have an alternative strategy, which is just to go dormant. And if they are dormant, they are going to survive the antibiotic treatment even if they are not resistant. So if they wake up and the antibiotic is still there, that's fine, the antibiotic will kill them because they are not resistant. But if they wake up after the antibiotic treatment has been stopped, the infection will go on. And in our present way of coping with or managing infections in a hospital or a general practice setting, we don't really consider the idea that different bugs might have different periods of dormancy. We just give a course of treatment and we assume that the bugs are going to die. But you're saying actually we need to factor in the fact that there will be dormant bacteria and we need to know how long that is for different strains of bugs and different infections. Exactly. Because these dormant bacteria can actually prolong the need of uh, antibiotic uh, treatment. And so what have you done to get a handle on that previously intractable problem? So the idea is to use statistical measurements. We put small uh, cultures of 100 uh, bacteria, we put the antibiotic for different durations, and then we see which uh, culture like that has survived antibiotic treatment. And by statistically analysing the results of whether they grew or didn't grow, we can know whether the bacteria can survive a prolonged antibiotic treatment and how long they can sleep under antibiotics. How would that change clinical management? So in a hospital setting, a patient has a swab taken, we know they've got an infection, the swab would come to the laboratory. How would your technique affect the type of antibiotic the doctor would give, how long for, and how they would then manage the patient? So when a swab is taken, today the uh, hospital measure 
resistance and accordingly decide uh, what antibiotic to give, and this is one number. We add another number, which means how tolerant or how long the bacterium can sleep under different drugs. And these numbers actually can direct the type of antibiotic that is maybe better than the initial uh, choice without these numbers and the duration of the treatment. So might, if you find there's one particular strain of bug that you get from a patient, if you discover that has a very long dormant period, might you instead switch antibiotics altogether because it would be better to use a different antibiotic and therefore you minimise overall the exposure of the environment to more antibiotics? Yes, exactly. So these dormant bacteria are actually better killed with, uh, with other antibiotics that are less used than the common antibiotics that we use. And therefore, either changing uh, the treatment would be the way to go if you have one of these sleeping bacteria in a patient, or the other way is to extend the duration of treatment. And what do you think the difference this could make will be? What's the scale of the impact of what you've discovered? Um, I think that uh, what it can uh, help is really tailor the antibiotic treatment to the properties of uh, the bacteria that we have, and not only the property of resistance. It would enable to extend the duration of treatment when needed and then prevent relapse of all kinds of infections that we know are coming back after patients stop the treatment. But on the other hand, if you can test and see that the bacteria in one patient are actually not dormant and don't have this property, then you can shorten the duration of treatment. So it's not just about lengthening treatment. Also, it's about reducing the overall use of antibiotics potentially. Why use overkill if you don't need to? Exactly, exactly. Exciting stuff, isn't it? That's Natalie Balaban there, and her study has just come out in the Biophysical Journal. Around the world in recent weeks, many countries have been sweltering under heat waves, and of course the energy that makes the Earth hot comes from the sun. But other than that, we know relatively little about our nearest star. It's a long way away, and temperatures in the millions of degrees mean we can't just land a probe there. Instead, scientists build simulations to test their ideas about how the sun might operate and then they compare the predictions of those computer models with real observations. And a team of scientists behind a paper out this week in the journal Science think they've got to the bottom of a phenomenon called solar spicules. These are long strands of high-energy plasma that get fired off into space at very high speed from the sun's surface. Lucy Green wasn't involved with the study itself, but she does do similar research of her own at University College London, and she's been looking into this paper for us. Lucy, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. I've read that these so-called solar spicules are ejected from the sun's surface at 60 miles per second and can reach lengths of something like 6,000 miles off the sun's surface. So what is going on to enable this to happen? Well, I think it's worth sort of setting the scene that our sun is a ball of gas and it's a ball of sort of seething and roiling gas. And the surface of the sun isn't a solid surface at all. It has a very, very low gas density. And actually, because of all this energy coming from the interior of the sun, the surface gas is moving around all the time. And within that, magnetic fields of the sun are also being moved around. So these spicules are being formed in a very, very dynamic part of the sun. And what happens? Why do they suddenly just fire off like that? 
Well, that's been a question that has been uh, worked on for a long time. And that's sort of one of the, the uh, findings of this paper is to help us understand what mechanisms are at play. And so you need to be able to come up with a way that you can accelerate gas away from the surface of the sun, so against the sun's gravity. And at the same time, you need to be able to heat the gas. And spicules, the reason that spicules are so interesting and, and important for the sun is that they seem to be a way by which you can send hot gas into the atmosphere of the sun and do things like heat the corona to the millions of degrees that you mentioned and supply the mass for the solar wind. And what this paper has done is to be able to say, well, actually, there's a particular evolution of the magnetic field in the bot at the bottom of the spicules that can store tension and release tension in the magnetic field. So imagine the magnetic field as being like almost like a guitar string that has a tension. And when you release that, you can accelerate the plasma a bit like sort of like a slingshot effect. Oh, I see. And and why didn't we really know much about this before? I imagine the sun, well, we're told not to look at it directly, aren't we? So I imagine it must be quite hard to study. It is hard to study and it's hard particularly in this layer of the sun's atmosphere lower down and that's because the physics there is incredibly complex and it's interesting to me because the upper atmosphere of the sun, the corona, we've focused on for a long time. And the lower layer that this paper is focusing on has sort of, I think, not perhaps received the um, focus, not, not because we're not interested in it, but because it's a really complex region. And so the plasma conditions there are very interesting. They're relatively high. Uh, the magnetic field evolves in, in very interesting ways. And so we've, we've needed to sort of make this stepwise development in the physics to be able to get to the point where we can start to understand why spicules form. And the model that's been developed by this team is absolutely a world-class model and leading the way in our understanding. They took data from NASA's spacecraft, Iris, and a telescope and then put it all into this model. And my understanding is it took a year to run this model because it was so complicated. Um, now, the thing I want to ask you is you're not involved in this study, so you're not biased. So can you just sort of sum up how important these studies are in, in terms of your field? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been a, a, an admirer of this model, this simulation for a long time, and it's becoming more and more realistic. And I, I think it's, it's the best model we have. And it's such an important area of the sun to understand because the, the region of the sun that they're looking at is kind of the gateway to the atmosphere and it regulates how mass and energy flow into the atmosphere of the sun. And what's been really important about this team is that they have right from the start recognised that when you launch a space mission, you need not only to have that data from the mission, but you also need to develop the model to go alongside it. So within your computer, you, you create the conditions as best you can, and then you make predictions about what the observations should show if you've got particular physical processes happening and that allows you to to test your physics models constrain the models with the data and the i think the sort of working in parallel of the simulations and the data has been a big focus of the iris mission and a big focus of this team and and now it's really paying off that's really interesting but what are the implications for us here on earth I think when it comes to applying this knowledge to us here on the ground, 
really the link is between what the sun's doing and something that we call space weather. And I think that this study will help us understand more the science of space weather. And by that, I mean understanding how the sun's atmosphere is varying over time. For example, the temperature of the atmosphere and the outflow of something called the solar wind. And it's the solar wind flowing towards the Earth that is a driver of a lot of the space weather that we receive. So I think this study is really about understanding and developing a much more detailed picture of how the plasma, the, the gas and the magnetic field in our local star evolves. Lucy Green from University College London, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Greer Jackson. Still to come, we'll be finding out how robots are taking over from doctors and operating theatres and how space rockets are saving lives down here on Earth. This week, scientists have discovered why some pregnant mothers develop the potentially life-threatening condition, preeclampsia. Obstetrician and researcher Catherine Aitken, who's at the University of Cambridge but wasn't involved in the study, explained to Chris what the findings mean. Preeclampsia is one of the great obstetric conundrums. It kills over 75,000 women worldwide each year, and yet really we struggle to have any handle on what it is how to tackle it, and truly what's at the root of causing this. What we have here is a new study that brings a different angle to tackling preeclampsia. Lots and lots of people have looked at mum's genetics in trying to find susceptibility here. This paper is a clever twist in that they've actually looked at the genetics of the baby to try to find out how they might be driving disease in the mum. When a person has preeclampsia, how would you recognise it, and how would a person know they got it? About 1 in 20 women develops preeclampsia during pregnancy, so it's actually a really common condition. As doctors, we struggle, though, because people present in lots and lots of different ways. People come with a headache, people come with a small baby, people come with very high blood pressure, and that enormous range of symptoms and signs, trying to disentangle exactly what is preeclampsia, becomes really tricky. So you don't know you're at risk of it, you don't know it's going to be a problem until you get pregnant... And then it's not till you're quite far through the pregnancy you then get problems and then it might even be a bit late. That's exactly it. And that's why this kind of study is really important because what we need, what we really urgently need, are ways of telling who's at risk. What have this group done? What this group have done is take an enormous number of babies' genomes. So they've got the genetics of almost 5,000 babies whom mums had preeclampsia during the pregnancy from both Iceland and the UK. And they've also got 300,000 babies whose mums didn't have preeclampsia during the pregnancy that they can compare the DNA and remarkably from that enormous amount of information they've managed to pinpoint a single variant in the babies whose mums did have preeclampsia that's more common than in the ones whose mums didn't. What area of the DNA is involved or what change do they think is in these infants that means they're at increased risk of their mum having preeclampsia? So the little piece that they find that's different in these babies is right beside a gene that's involved in forming the placenta. Now, the placenta is the interface between mum and baby. If the placenta doesn't form properly, then that can be the driver for preeclampsia. And it's very possible that what they find is a developmental problem with the placenta. So it's a really attractive theory 
that the baby has this genetic variance, that that then means the placenta doesn't develop properly, and then that then drives changes in the mum that we see as this high blood pressure, protein in the urine, and ultimately risky preeclampsia pregnancies. What proportion, roughly, of babies in which preeclampsia happens would this account for? Well, the actual increased risk is about 20% increase in the risk of preeclampsia. So it's certainly not the answer to finding all of preeclampsia cases. But this is exactly the kind of insight we need. And the really interesting thing is that having found this little piece of DNA has then given them a rationale to go on to look at other bits around the same region of the gene. And they've also found a new novel variant based on this knowledge. And that's the kind of snowballing effect that this sort of study gives us to be able to bring in other insights that all piece together to form a big picture of how we can tackle preeclampsia. And ultimately, does this give us the the holy grail, to use a horrible cliche, which is a test of who might be at risk? So when you're booking in with your GP and having your antenatal screen, this could be included or something like this in, in the long term in order to look at who might be at risk and worth keeping an eye on. That would be fantastic. That's the ultimate goal with this kind of research. We're quite far off that at the minute. I don't think they've found the single basis of a test that would work that way. But ultimately, when we're reading these studies, we allow ourselves to get a little bit excited at the thought that one day this might be contributing to that kind of test. Mm, Sounds intriguing. Catherine Aiken there speaking to Chris earlier. And the study she was commenting on is by Ralph McGuinness, and it's come out in the journal Nature Genetics. Now, something very exciting. This week we're launching a new feature here on The Naked Scientist and it's called Down to Earth. And in it, physicist Stuart Higgins looks at how technologies and breakthroughs made originally for the space race are helping to make life a bit better for us here on the ground. And this week, airbags are under analysis. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Hello, this is Down to Earth from The Naked Scientists with Dr Stuart Higgins and this episode we're talking about how the technology of setting off rockets could save your life in a car crash. T-minus 10, 9, 8. If you want to go to space, you need to get off the planet and you need a lot of energy to overcome gravity's pull. The technology of choice for years has been the rocket. Lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis. Take NASA's space shuttle, for example. It had a big orange fuel tank attached to its belly containing liquid rocket fuel and two thin rockets strapped to its sides. It was these two rocket motors that provided most of the thrust to get the shuttle off the ground. Each was filled with over 450 tonnes of solid rocket fuel. Each rocket was heavier than a fully loaded jumbo jet and produced 12 million newtons of thrust. But how do you set off a lump of solid rocket fuel that's over 15 metres tall? You need a pyrotechnic initiator. It's a gadget that starts off the chemical reaction. In NASA rockets, an electrical current is passed through a wire, which heats up and ignites a small explosive charge. This in turn sets off a reaction in a chemical called lead azide. It's a molecule made up of the metal lead and three nitrogen atoms, that's the azide part, These nitrogen atoms react to produce heat and nitrogen gas, which trigger another, more powerful explosive that in turn sets off the rocket and lift off. And it turns out that this rocket science is used in a life-saving technology here on Earth, the airbag. 
Airbags, like rockets, contain a pyrotechnic initiator which causes the rapid breakdown of a chemical, producing lots of gas. In fact, one rocket manufacturer in Japan directly used its technology to help a car manufacturer make their airbags. Nowadays, airbags tend to use chemicals that react more efficiently and cleanly, but many were originally based on sodium azide, which, like the lead azide used by NASA, reacts producing nitrogen gas. Two molecules of sodium azide react to give three molecules of nitrogen gas, and the gas occupies a volume far greater than the original solid. In fact, only about 130 grams of sodium azide is needed for a 70 liter airbag. During a crash, an electrical circuit triggers the reaction, filling the airbag in less than 30 milliseconds, much faster than a blink of an eye. The airbag increases the time it takes you to slow down during a crash. The longer the time taken, the lower the force that's applied to the body. This is particularly important for delicate organs such as the brain, which can strike the inside of the skull. So that's how launching space rockets has led to airbags that save thousands of lives each year. I've been Dr. Stuart Higgins, and you can get more episodes of Down to Earth online at nakedscientist.com slash downtoearth. Stuart Higgins, and you can join Stuart in the bedroom next week, where he'll be exploring the science of shape memory foam and why you have it to thank for a good night's kip. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I do when I get up after a good night's rest is no, I don't check my memory foam. I reach for a cup of coffee. But new research out from London's Kew Gardens warns that climate change will significantly affect where we can grow coffee in the future, which may well affect the flavour. Georgia Mills went along to the University of Cambridge Botanic Gardens with Glasshouse supervisor Alex Summers to hunt for some coffee beans. So it's usually late in the year when we actually get the whole bit back there is just coffee, so this is all coffee here. Oh, wow. So there's no, there's no beans on show at the moment. I guess it's the wrong time of year? Absolutely. Our coffee tends to produce flowers and fruits later in the year. And as you can see at the moment,、uh, we have nothing. <laughs> But you do have a coffee machine? We do indeed have a coffee machine. I think, like all institutions, many days are run on the back of coffee. <laughs> Too hot to be having a hot drink, really.、Mm. <laughs> exactly. And so, we, you have、uh, coffee beans growing here at the Botanic Gardens, but they're in a, we just saw them there in a greenhouse.、Mm-hmm. They can only grow in certain places in the world. Absolutely. So, coffee in itself is what we think of as a tropical crop. That means that it can grow in latitudes between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Even within those latitudes, there'll still be areas it can and can't grow. So, if you can imagine within the tropics, you might get the really hot lowland plains and you might get those cooler, more montane environments. And in the situation of those cooler, more montane environments, the temperatures never get to the, quite the extremes that you would see in the lowlands. And coffee in itself is from the Ethiopian highlands and they're a, a cooler tropical environment. So, let's go with the Colombian coffee. As always. <laughs> so, despite spilling half of it, Alex brewed up a rather excellent cup of Colombian coffee. But will this soon be a luxury of the past? Because a paper out in Nature Genetics has used modelling to predict that 39 to 59% of our current coffee growing areas could be rendered unsuitable by climate change. I think this is an interesting thing to bring up because I think it's the case for many plants from many environments. The fact is that climate change is happening, it's coming along, and that affects the 
temperature environment in which many of these plants grow. So in the case of coffee, we've spoken that it's from these more montane parts of the tropics. So what that means is as temperatures rise, it has a tendency to force coffee in itself out of the locations that we tend to find it, probably higher up the mountain ranges or the bits of the, for example, the Ethiopian highlands that it's found at. If that means you're a coffee farmer, it might mean that some of the areas you're currently using to farm become unsuitable environmentally, probably become too hot or probably have a climate which changes enough that you're unable to grow the coffee there to the same extent and to the same efficiency that you've been growing it there previously. What does this mean for the future of our coffee supply? The thing with climate change is that it's, it's not even. While certain habitats will become unfit for coffee, there'll be other ones that open up that will become fit for coffee. And I think what essentially this paper is highlighting is that there are many areas that we're going to lose for coffee growers Uh, But there will be many areas that will then become available for coffee to be cultivated in. So I think what it highlights is in this changing world, we're going to have to be flexible to changing our cultivation practices and also to make land available where it's required to grow coffee. But it does mean that we have to be cautious to look after what we've got. So the good agricultural land we've got, we have to look after being sustainable with our practices so that we don't ruin areas so that we can't move into them in the future and also for those bits of natural habitat and environment we've still got left that hold huge diversity that can be bred into these crops to change them in the future as we need to that we don't absolutely destroy that either so I think it's a pragmatic approach. So there is hope for the humble coffee bean. It may move location which can affect the flavour and the prices but if we're careful with our practices we will still be able to get hold of it. But what about the growers? If you're a local farmer and you farm a particular area and that area then becomes unsuitable for coffee cultivation, it's not as simple for you to pick up your land, move it to a new suitable location and go ahead. And so I think in these cases here we also have to be aware of the effects it has at a local scale, not just at the national scale where we can say positively, yeah, we know that we'll be able to move coffee cultivation from one location to another. We also need to understand how it's going to affect the local communities who depend on that for a livelihood. Mm, It's a difficult nut to crack, isn't it? Georgia Mills there enjoying a hot cup of coffee with Alex Summers from Cambridge University Botanic Gardens. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Greg Jackson and Chris Smith. This week we're exploring how intelligent machines are destined to transform our lives. We'll be hearing how robots may soon have our lives in their hands, but... Can we trust them? And what roles will they fulfil? First, let's consider farming. Simon Pearson is at the University of Lincoln, where he looks at how robotics could revolutionise the way we grow our food. So what will these machines do? Probably the earliest ones that you'll start to see are for crop sensing. So, um, But basically, it's a very simple robot which, which wanders around the field, looks at crops, measures soil moisture, measures soil chemistry and provides information back to farmers. Think of the Mars rover, but rather than uh, wandering around Mars, we've got robots wandering around Earth. The next manifestation which will come through will probably be crop picking uh, robots. So these are robots which, again, go into a field. They might not be autonomous, might be mounted on a tractor uh, or an existing agricultural vehicle, but there'll be sensors on the robot. The robot will then detect crops, uh, assess the maturity state of the crop, and then pick them. And as it's driving around, so it's using sensors like cameras to look at the crop and so on. Yep. Can it distinguish between a pea and a potato or a pea, a potato and a weed? Oh, no, it can definitely do that. We're, we're doing 
uh, doing algorithm development, which is really using sort of machine learning techniques. So we have camera systems uh, looking at crops, and then what the what the robot's got to do is is segregate a weed from a crop plant. If it's a hoeing robot, you don't want it to hoe the crop rather than the weeds. So there's some very sophisticated uh, algorithms which power those robots to give it situation awareness. With crop picking, that's particularly difficult because you're looking at one crop, but then you're looking for different features of the crop, whether a broccoli, if it's ready to harvest, whether that broccoli is 6 centimetres, 9 centimetres or 12 centimetres. That's really quite difficult. If I look at the farmland near where I live, there are patches of the field that are clearly really good for that crop because the crop is three times taller there than it is in the bit next door where there might be almost bare earth. Now, could that be because there's sort of regional variations in the soil quality, the drainage quality, the amount of nutrients that are there? And could a robot that has the time that a farmer wouldn't be able to painstakingly go along and dress the soil in one place to to favour the crop and and not waste its fertiliser on an area that clearly already has sufficient? That's the whole idea. That's one of the big opportunities in robotics. So it's about field mapping and sensing. So to be able to to produce informed decisions and accurate decisions or information on why you've got this infield variability is probably one of the biggest opportunities in agriculture. Now the reason is the theoretical yield of crop of wheat is about uh, about 17 tonnes per hectare. The delivered yield of a crop of wheat in the UK is about nine. Now within patches of a field you will find areas which are close to that that, uh, magical yield potential but it's because of the variability in the field that we're not delivering the yields that we should and so so robotics to enable understanding that variability and then mitigating against it it could be a key driver of food security in the in the future how does this go down with farmers they're looking at it uh, very seriously Uh, farmers are cautious people they've seen lots of uh, clever ideas in the past and uh, Uh, They're hoping it succeeds, uh, but I think the jury's out. They're waiting for some of these technologies to deliver. Is there not a cost in human terms? If you're paying a robot, which doesn't cost you anything once you've got it running apart from the electricity, to do that job, you're not paying a human? Well, yeah, so the, the sensing robots, so the Mars rover manifestation, that will help with the yield gap. Um, it won't really impact human labour. It, it will be an environmental benefit because it will be more precise application of pesticides and fertilisers to sustainably grow yield without increasing their impact on the environment. For crop picking robots, the industry is very highly reliant upon very large numbers of seasonal labourers. They're very concerned with the impact of Brexit in terms of the availability of labour. So the English uh, and UK industry is very interested in robotics to try and provide a a sustainable way to harvest their crops. If you go to Japan, the average age of a farmer in Japan is 69 and his, his kids don't want to go into farming. So there's a demographic issue of aged farmers and their children not coming through or or young people certainly not coming through into the farming industry. There'll be more people retired in China uh, by 2030 than the entire population of Europe. Uh, So they have an enormous demographic problem. They're very highly reliant on migrant labour in the United States to harvest crops. So there's some huge uh, global trends suggesting that that labour availability is going to be scarce for many of these agricultural Um, jobs, particularly crop harvesting. Now that job itself, uh, you've got to be pretty fit to do it. 
and uh, it's a challenging job. You're in all sorts of environments. Uh, it's monotonous. It's hard work. You know that just the the sheer uh, issues with that job itself are deterring people from from entering in the workforce. Are these robots up to doing this sort of heavy lifting in terms of you couple a big plough on the back of a tractor and you drag it through the field? Are these robots robust enough for that, or is there still going to be a farmer ploughing fields for the foreseeable future? It's very early days for crop harvesting robotics. Probably the whole field's only two years in. Systems will get more and more robust. Um, but there will be a limitation uh, of, of what they can do. So, so big tractors are always going to be needed just because of physics. You need a very powerful tractor with a very large engine to turn over soil at a high rate. Now, other jobs like crop harvesting, where you've got less of a physics issue, you can have lightweight machine, accurate machines, crop uh, picking crops um, all day and every day. Are you comfortable placing our agricultural future in the hands of a robot? If you're winding the clock forward over 20 years, I would say yes, but there's some quite significant technical challenges that we've got to face up to before we can put our future in the hands of a, of a robot. Simon Pearson there from the University of Lincoln. Now, while the appearance of robots in farmers' fields is relatively uncontroversial, the use of robots on the battlefield, on the other hand, is a very different story. So what sorts of machines might we expect to be sending into battle on our behalf in future? Katie Haler put the question to Sheffield University's Noel Sharkey. Well, there are many kinds, really, there, from everything from combat robots being used in the air to attack people um, there are robots on the ground that will help retrieve soldiers from the battlefield. There are a lot of bomb disposable robots that, that go after improvised explosive devices under cars and that sort of thing. And then there are robots being used for simple things like cleaning the hulls of battleships. And which ones do you think are particularly novel? The most novel are also the most dangerous lethal autonomous weapon systems. They will fly out or drive out. Uh, find their own targets and kill them without human intervention. Is this sci-fi? Is this stuff stuck in a laboratory? Or is these robots actually being used? They're not being deployed yet, but they're certainly being tested uh, largely by the United States, by Russia, by the UK, by China, by Israel, and some other countries that are kind of more secretive about them. So it's not long before they will be used. They could be used now, some of them, but they're not using them because there's a lot of debate as to whether it's right to have machines that can make decisions, life and death decisions, without a human helping them. Do we really know that a robot is going to do what you tell it to do, say in a battle situation? The more autonomy you give a robot weapon, and we're talking here about tanks, submarines, aircraft, gunboats, all those kinds of things, traditional military weapons, not terminators, the more they work on their own, the more they are likely to come upon unpredictable events. In a battlefield, there must be a very large number, if not infinite number, of unanticipated actions. And at that point, you can't have fully tested an autonomous robotics device. And so it, it, it will cause accidents. It will be unpredictable. Is there any case for trusting robots in military situations? I'm thinking, you know, could, could a good relationship with a robot, could it be good for soldier morale? In very, very difficult, dangerous situations, people tend to bond. And it turns out that people are bonding with remote-controlled bomb disposal robots. 
And that's very dangerous because they, they love it so much, they take it to the droid hospital, they won't take a new replacement, they want the same robot back. Soldiers then are prepared to give their life to save that robot because it's their buddy. So you don't want that kind of trust relationship. But I would say that they trust them to find bombs for them. There's a good case for trusting robots that will extract people from the battlefield. So a, a battlefield extract assistive robot called the Vecna Bear was being developed. And that's like a little forklift truck. It goes into the battlefield, picks up soldiers and brings them back. But the thing was, they found that soldiers didn't really trust them because, you know, who wants to be picked up by a forklift truck? Maybe it's the enemy. But when you put a bear's head on it, then people feel more comfortable with it. They trust it more because it reminds them of their childhood. You're lying there wounded in a sorry state and you kind of regress a bit and you look up and you see this big bear coming to your rescue and you think, oh. Say in a combat situation, aren't robots just more capable than humans? They've got better sensors, they're stronger. Doesn't this mean we should be trusting them more than a human soldier? I think our perception is still well beyond anything you find in in the military in in any sense we can deal with shadows in a way that uh, machine vision machine vision is nowhere near the capability of humans but where they could be i mean they could be very good for instance for detecting a sniper so they can use auditory information to quickly swing around and know the exact source of the sniper and fire a weapon straight at them but, you know, snipers are the trickiest people in the battlefield. Accuracy is not everything. It's being able to determine the legitimacy of your target. So a human can have what you call human deliberation. They can look at a target in context. It's also not that smart to shoot people sometimes when killing them could cause a riot and they come and get you. But there's a really famous example in Iraq of soldiers. They had their machine guns raised. They trapped some insurgents in an alleyway. And when they looked closely, they saw that they were carrying a coffin. They took off their helmets and lowered their weapons out of respect. A robot will not be able to do that because it's an unanticipated situation. You can do all the testing in the world, but what happens when one autonomous robot weapon meets another autonomous robot weapon, or worse, a swarm of robot weapons on the border meets a swarm of other robot weapons? Well, what happens... I don't know, and nor does anybody else on the planet. Because if you take two algorithms and you don't know the contents, and nobody but a fool would reveal the contents of their weapons algorithm, it's totally unpredictable. In the next, say, five years, what is the most likely autonomous weapon to be used? Well, I would like to say none because I'm part of a very large campaign of 60 NGOs, Human Rights Watch, the Nobel Laureates, Amnesty International, etc. And we're working very hard at the UN and, and getting headway to have any weapon prevented that does not allow effective human control or meaningful human control, as they say. There are some autonomous weapons around that get used all the time. And they, you would really call them an automatic weapon. And people can trust those more because what they do is they shoot down missiles that are coming at you. But we're not talking realistically about enormous humanoid 
robots roaming around the battlefield, are we? No, very definitely not. I mean, they would be easy to shoot, cut their legs off, they stumble, they fall over. Um, so, so be much more likely to see a massive tank, like the Russians are developing the Armati T-14 tank and making it autonomous, and that's a sort of super tank. Nobody's talking about a, a, a Terminator robot. The Russians have made a Terminator robot that fires a machine gun, but they're not being terribly serious. Well, that's a relief, isn't it? Thought-provoking stuff there from Noel Sharkey. He was speaking with Katie Haler. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Greer Jackson. Now, we've just been hearing about robots trying to take your life, but what about the robots intended trying to save it? Hutan Ashrafian is a surgeon and a lecturer at Imperial College London. I have heard that robots are being used in surgery already. And actually, I've heard of a certain one, a robot giving um, humans an injection in the eye, which oh, makes me quiver. But what's the extent they're being used already? Robots have been around in surgery and in healthcare for over 30 years, but they've had a particular rise in fame over the past 10 years because they offer so many good things that we like in surgery, such as increased precision, better outcomes, uh, smaller incisions, shorter hospital stays and quicker recoveries. Um, They are used in nearly every organ system that we have today and typically they're used to take away cancers or reconstruct parts of the body by connecting two blood vessels together and they're they're very fabulous as you said you know they can be used for injections in the eye because they're very precise but they also have this capability of acting as platforms for all sorts of new novel technology such as being able to operate from inside the body rather than from outside the body or using some of the new devices that we have at imperial college such as the eye knife which is an electrical scalpel whose smoke can detect cancer That's absolutely incredible. And I want to ask you more about that. But what you're talking about here, the eye knife, that's all, you know, still very much in the domain of human control. You control it when you're doing surgery. But what about the autonomy, the robot doing and thinking for itself? Well, at the moment, uh, safety tends to be the strongest paradigm in modern surgery. And uh, All the robots that we tend to use are using the master-slave system. That means the surgeon is the master and the robot is the slave. So it's essentially an extension of the human mind uh, to make decisions. The human mind makes the decisions and the robot performs the action. And in that sense, the robots are not at all autonomous. There are robots that help guide people and you can have augmented reality where you can overlay images in your robotic field, but currently no robots are autonomous. So uh, what, what needs to happen next for, say, a robot to take out your appendix? Well, we need to know... Uh, with good evidence that uh, an autonomous robot would be safe. And if this is an autonomous robot with a human level of consciousness, can it make human level decisions? And can those decisions be trusted? And at the moment, we don't have that evidence and we don't have that technology. So we really can't go down that road. But there is potential as strong AI tends to uh, become stronger literally every day, we might be able to use robots that have a level of autonomy in our day-to-day operations. Is that just a case of coding algorithms? I know we've got these three laws, or actually you've now told me previously when we were chatting that there are more than three laws that enable robots means they can't hurt you or me. So there's up to six laws, uh, or classical laws, that uh, were started off by Isaac Asimov, but people have modified them. I did one of them myself. But the issue is that we need to make sure that if a robot has autonomy and has a human level of consciousness, then it will act in the human best interest. And 
potentially that may happen one day, although it's not currently there yet. So why would we want something like this? I mean, we spend, well, not me personally, but you've spent years training to do the work you do. Why would a robot be better than you? The robot might have increased precision, might have better access to parts of the body, but the reality is that the robot can be manufactured and automated. And there are up to 5 billion people worldwide that don't have access to quality surgical care or anaesthesia, and this could fulfil and complete that void to ensure that everyone worldwide could have surgical care at a, at a very high level. There is a downside, and the downside might be that if we do have robots that have a level of autonomy and decision-making that is independent, how can we trust them? Can we necessarily trust them? And will patients trust them to, to operate on them? Because this is a, a new uh, device. And, and whereas be before you'd have the doctor-patient relationship, now you have the doctor-patient-robot relationship. Would you trust a robot to take out your appendix? So if the evidence was available and it was successful, then yes, I would be happy for it. Although uh, I would say 20, 30 years. Oh, it's still a long way off then. Yeah, I'd say a long way off. So presumably there are some risks associated with this. Well, one clear risk is uh, diseases are unpredictable by their very nature. And so although we can have robots that have been programmed in a particular way to look for particular diseases in a particular context, sometimes diseases don't present themselves in a standard fashion. And the way we've been trained is to think out of the box and to be able to assess patients from multiple angles and uh, multiple facets of their healthcare. A robot at the moment doesn't have that ability and therefore might miss something. Hutan, can I just come in there a second? Because one of the things that surgeons say to me is that it's the feel which really matters. And actually getting your hands dirty, metaphorically, is 90% of the experience. Now, if you're operating a robot, you don't get that same visceral, excuse the pun, interaction with the tissue. Do you think that this is a, a good substitute? Um, the, the feel effect that people talk about uh, is very important for a trainee surgeon, particularly in open surgery. But uh, actually, the evidence suggests that for some operations in some parts of the body, although you don't get that tactility in some settings, it doesn't seem to have caused any difference in outcomes. Whereas in other operations and other settings, it does seem to be a critical factor. So it really def depends on the organ system that is being talked about. But it, for a, a trainee surgeon, clearly that's an important step uh, and might be be one for a robotic surgeon on their learning curve. And most of the current robotic platforms uh, in use today tend to have a 3D visualisation scheme to try and offer the surgeon uh, a depth of vision that would reflect what they see in real life in an open surgery so that they can have better outcomes. And you can trust him. He's a doctor. Hutan Ashrafian there from Imperial College. Now, surgical robotics is remarkable. But how much can you or should you be trusting other types of robots, and particularly during emergency situations, like a fire, for example? Well, Georgia Mills quizzed Kirsten Doutenhahn, who's at the University of Hertfordshire, about this subject. She's urging extreme caution towards trusting robots in general, particularly following the publication of one study from Georgia Tech. Researchers simulated an emergency scenario where people had first seen the robot in one condition where it behaved properly and the other one where it made mistakes. And then the researchers wanted to see if the participants would still trust that robot in an emergency situation. So they were creating artificial smoke, you know, using theater smoke. The fire alarm rang. And then the question was, would participants follow 
the robot's suggestions. And what they found is that regardless of whether people had experienced the robot previously as working properly or not working properly, they all followed the robot's suggestion to go to what the robot proposed was an emergency exit. In fact, it wasn't. Uh, The robot was misleading them. What it basically shows is that people are quite trusting when it comes to robots, even if they have seen it before not working properly. So people do seem to trust robots, perhaps a little too much, in these emergency situations. And Kirsten has found a similar trend in her own research. We've done a study where we had different types of tasks that people had to do together with the robot. And they had previously experienced the robot either as a faulty robot or as a correctly working robot. And the number of unusual requests that the robot then asked people to execute was, for example, to pour orange juice into a plant or to put a pile of unopened letters into the bin or to access a friend's laptop. In the case of throwing away unopened letters, 90% of the participants uh, followed the advice. With regard to pouring orange juice into a plant, Two-thirds of participants followed the request. And regarding accessing a friend's laptop, 100% of the participants followed the suggestions. Despite when the robot performed incorrectly, they did say it is less trustworthy. But still, the big majority followed the robot's suggestion. So what this generally shows is that there is this notion of trust and sometimes over-trust. So whether you're being pointed to the fire exits or being asked to pour orange juice on a plant, people do tend to follow the instructions of even comically malfunctioning robots, which could be a bit of a problem. Robots are machines, and similar to our laptops and our smartphones and our washing machines, they will never work perfectly 100% of the time. Your laptop might crash, your mobile phone suddenly, you know, a particular software might not be running on there anymore, you have to reboot. Regardless of how intelligent they might be, regardless of how interactive they might be, these are machines. So what we would ideally wish is that people are sensitive to these breakdowns and are able to recognize, maybe I should be careful, maybe I should not follow its suggestions, maybe I should switch it off and uh, ask the manufacturer to repair it. Or perhaps try turning it off and on again. But why are we putting so much of our trust into robots? The physical presence of that robot, the fact that the robot is there with you, sharing that particular space in time with you, makes it much more a figure of authority as compared to, for example, a virtual agent on your computer screen or mobile phone. So it seems to be this physical embodiment that plays a role, but there are many more other things that need to be investigated. For example, the long-term effect. Would you still trust a robot if over an extended period of time it has shown to be faulty? How would the nature of the mistakes that the robot make influence trust? And our trust of robots could be linked to their shape. For example, would you trust a robot more if it looked like a person? There is a lot of research in terms of how do people perceive different types of robots. One of the disadvantages with using a humanoid robot is that people automatically generate very high expectations. They will assume that system has human-like capabilities and human-like intelligence and also common sense understanding of what happens in the world and what it is to be human. And that, of course, is not the case. We don't have any machines yet with human-level intelligence. Kirsten Dautenhorn, 
from the University of Hertfordshire. And thank you to our other contributors this week, Noel Sharkey, Hutan Ashrafian and Simon Pearson. And now it's time for Question of the Week. And Izzy's been sounding out this quandary from Sam. I have an apartment with a terrace oriented towards a highway. Would it be possible to use anti-noise to take away highway noise on the terrace? Or, alternatively, to install huge anti-noise speakers next to the highway to take away the noise for the entire neighbourhood? Wouldn't it be nice to enjoy a peaceful afternoon on an otherwise noisy terrace? We asked Trevor Cox from the University of Salford to crank up the volume on this acoustic inquiry. Active noise control, also known as anti-noise, is a process that gets rid of an unwanted sound by using a second sound that is specifically designed to cancel out the first. To get active noise control to silence the traffic, you would need to produce a sound that is the inverse of the highway noise. When these two add together, the rumble of the traffic is removed. Imagine the traffic noise is like a water wave at the seaside. The cancelling sound needs to have a trough where the traffic noise has a peak, so that when you add the two together, the peaks and the troughs cancel each other out, leaving you with flat, still water. So that's the physics of sound waves covered. But would it really cancel out a noisy highway? Reducing noise this way works very well in small, confined spaces and low to mid frequencies. This is why it's used inside some cars and also in those active headphones that you can buy to use on the plane. But try active noise control in a large space where sound can move around in all directions and it doesn't work unless you have a huge number of microphones to sense the sound and a similarly large number of loudspeakers to create the cancelling noise. Not only is noise coming off in different directions, the frequencies would also range outside this ideal low to mid range, making it more difficult to remove. Plus, it might create a few new problems. The loudspeakers pumping out the cancelling noise is increasing the amount of sound energy in the neighbourhood. There will be places, maybe your neighbour's house, where the noise will actually be worse. Finally, even if you could get it to work, it will always be much cheaper to build and maintain a noise barrier. But all is not lost. One trick you might try is to try not to get rid of the noise, but to hide it. Put on some music on your terrace. So it looks like the sound is here to stay. We also put this on the Naked Scientists forum, where Alan said... You can buy such good active noise reduction headphones that it's hardly worth it. Plus, an angry neighbourhood mob doesn't sound ideal either. Next time, we'll be cleaning up for Caitlin's question. The hypothesis is that washing dishes manually leaves some harmful detergent residue, which we consume next time the dishes are used for eating or drinking. Are the residues from common manual dishwashing significantly toxic to humans in the short or long term? So it'll be rinse and repeat until we have the answer. If you think you do know, though, in the meantime, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or, as always, join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientists.com slash forum. And would you believe it, question of the week is almost a decade old from this year. So I thought it'd be rather nice to ask you, what are your fondest memories of question of the week or your fondest answers that we've tackled over the years? Tell us, and we'll revisit some of those treasured episodes.
That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Katie Haler for putting the programme together. And do be sure to join us next time when we're setting out to sea with the launch of Marine Month. This is a series of shows in which we're going to be exploring the underwater realm, everywhere from the sand on the beach to what lies at the bottom of the world's deepest oceans. Thank you to Greer for helping to present this week's programme. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.